Thank you, Lisa, for that ministry and music. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Great to see you. Thank you for coming back tonight as we study the book of Ecclesiastes. There were handouts on that stool in the narthex. I uh, hope you availed yourself of one. If not, feel free to go back and uh, pick one up. But uh, tonight we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 11. We are looking at the question, what does it take to be happy? What is it that is going to bring fulfillment and meaning to life? What is going to bring joy to the heart of an individual? Our theme tonight is since all his hard work is not producing any meaningful change to the societal ills, Solomon decides that he must simply learn to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Solomon now decides to be self-indulgent. We want to look at the process that is going on in the life of Solomon. We begin by saying Solomon had to shoulder a great responsibility as king over Israel. Initially, when Solomon first becomes king, he is extremely cognizant of the severe, crucial responsibilities that he has as a king. And he's quite humble. And so as he begins his kingship, he offers a prayer to God that is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting at verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a child, I do not know how to come, go out, or come in. Now, he's saying that in a figurative sense. Obviously, he's a mature individual. But he's saying, but I'm like a child. I, I, I don't even know where to go. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Again, Solomon recognizes the great responsibility. He wants to be a good king. He asks for wisdom in order to make right decisions in governing the people of God. That I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? He wants to know what it is that he should do, what policies that he should establish, what are the uh, parameters that he is to engage in as king. So that leads us up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. He's denoting this great responsibility that he has been entrusted with. And Solomon started out by conscientiously seeking to fulfill all his responsibilities and to meet the needs of his people. Verse 13, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under, under heaven. So, so he wanted to understand God's purposes, God's design, God's role for him as king, what God wanted from his people, what he wanted from the nation of Israel. He gave himself to a deep study and consideration of these great 
responsibilities. However, Solomon found this to be an unpleasant task. Solomon is, is going to be disquieted as a result of all these responsibilities. If you notice in Ecclesiastes 1.13, it says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then he describes it this way. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The NAS translates it, it's a grievous task. He came to see this responsibility as a burden. At the end of verse 13, he says he had to be busy with this. Uh, in the NAS, I like that translation where it says that uh, he was afflicted with this responsibility. The NIV translates it, it was a heavy burden. The thought is that leadership is tough when it's taken seriously. He found it to be a grind. He, he found it to be hard and difficult. Uh, it was not easy. So why was it so difficult to be king? B, why is the faithful exercise of duties futile? For it said in verse 14, all is vanity, a striving after wind. One, because all the wrongs of the world cannot be righted. Ecclesiastes 1.15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. As Solomon is looking at life and looking at all these responsibilities and duties and what he should be doing and what the people should be doing, he began to see that there were just a multitude of injustices, as we're going to see as we work our way through Ecclesiastes. Uh, there were a lot of wrongs that needed to be righted. There were a lot of situations that just weren't appropriate. And so as he looks at that, he comes to the conclusion that all these injustices can't be righted. There, there's just no way to solve all of the problems that he was able to identify. And so it was frustrating. What was he to do? What was he to do? You can't make that which is crooked right, he says. And then secondly, because the needs that we see are greater than the resources to meet them. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and furthermore, what is lacking cannot be counted. So when you think about what needs to be done, that lacking, what uh, needs to be provided for the people, what uh, is need to be uh, achieved and accomplished, he says, you can't, you can't even count it. You can't even stop and put a number to all the things that not only could be done, but more importantly, should be done. And so one cannot even begin to address all the needs that exist in the world. One cannot even count them, let alone meet them. So see, in all this great wisdom, Solomon still does not possess the answers to life's problems. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 and 17, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. 
it's another analogy. It's like a dog chasing its tail. Solomon says, no matter how much wisdom I acquire, no matter how much knowledge I have, and I have more knowledge and I have more wisdom than anyone that was before me, but it's not enough. It's not enough. I still don't know how to solve these problems. I still don't know how to make the crooked straight. I still don't know how to meet all the needs that I see present. And so, D, the more wisdom that Solomon had, the more disillusioned he became. There is a lot of sorrow associated with wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1.18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. The word vexation is disquietness, unrest, anxiety. He laid awake at night thinking about these issues and these problems. Number two, the more he increased in knowledge, the more pain he experienced. For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The word for sorrow is mental pain and anguish. It was disheartening to ponder. Application. Sometimes the more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. There's an old adage that perhaps you have heard that says ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Solomon could not escape the issues that he saw. They were on his mind constantly. And the more you want to help, the more realize that there is nothing you can do. It is one thing to identify a problem. It is still another to have empathy for that need. But it's heartbreaking to know that you can't fix it. And Solomon had thought that as a result of his wisdom and knowledge, he was going to be able to fix the societal ills that he saw. He thought that knowledge was going to be the key. But unfortunately, the knowledge didn't provide for him what he thought that it was going to obtain. And as a result, he becomes disillusioned. He becomes frustrated. It doesn't achieve what he had hoped that it would. It was an interesting pilgrimage in my own life. My intention from the time that I was 10 years old was to be a pastor. <clears throat> and uh, my uh, pastor encouraged me uh, to get a secular degree first and then go to seminary second uh, to have a, a broader, uh, well, really it turned out he was wanting me to have a backup plan because I found out later he was leaving the ministry. <laughs> so uh, uh, be ready to do something else is really what, what was in the back of his mind, although it, it wasn't couched that way. But I remember when I was uh, at uh, Kutztown College, now university, Oh, I was uh, involved with InterVarsity, and one of the things that InterVarsity did was we had a literature table. Uh, we set it out in the student union, and uh, I manned that literature table every Thursday. It had books on it, it had, it had tracks on it, it had information, and I would sit in the student union behind this and, and engage with 
students as they walk by as an opportunity to share the gospel with them and to answer any spiritual questions that they had. Well, most often it was a debate, and it was uh, asking hard and difficult questions, trying to trick me up and uh, trying to demonstrate the fact that, uh, you know, Christianity is shallow and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, as I sat there uh, behind the table, I would get frustrated because I didn't have the answers that I wanted to have. You know, I, I, I wasn't able to uh, give a pithy uh, response that would just devastate and demonstrate the truths of the word. So I longed for the knowledge of the scriptures to be able to answer these questions. So to make a long story short, I, I transferred uh, after uh, completing my second year at Kutztown. I went to Lancaster Bible College and uh, got my degree from Lancaster and uh, realized there was a lot more to learn, so I went on to seminary. And then uh, after going to seminary, I realized there's a lot more to learn and I uh, worked on my doctorate. And I kept looking so that I would have the answers, that I could answer people when they would bring up their objections, when they would bring up their accusations. And you know, I discovered after many, many years of education that I still don't have the answers. I still find it difficult to interact with people about the truthfulness of the gospel. For, you know, faith is not answered by an intellectual argument. Faith is a gift of God. Unless God opens the hearts and minds of an individual, you can't reason them into the kingdom. You just can't. You can't. And so, life in one sense is very freeing. I found that to be a freeing truth that all I do is share the word and the Spirit of God has to apply it. The Spirit of God has to give people the ability to receive it. He has to open their hearts and minds. On the other hand, it can be frustrating. It can be disillusioning. If you think that you're going to get all the answers that are going to solve all the problems, eventually you find out you just don't have them. You just don't have them. Even the wisest person on the face of the earth came to the conclusion he just didn't have the answers. He didn't know what to do. So he became disillusioned. He became frustrated. And Solomon actually gives up. He gives up. What's the point? All right? I, I'm never going to make these things right. I'm never going to have enough resources. So he quits looking outward and he begins to look inward. Number two, since his labor is not producing any meaningful change to the societal ills, Solomon decides that he must simply learn to enjoy what life has to offer. Why make himself miserable over other people's problems? Solomon now decides to be self-indulgent. Just live for himself. Make himself happy. Uh, just go for all the gusto in life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. 
enjoy yourself. And then we have this refrain again, but behold, this also is vanity. That's kind of the heading of this particular portion of Solomon's life, and he'll come back to that conclusion again. But this is just a foreshadowing, that enjoying yourself is not the answer. But now we see the way in which Solomon sought to enjoy himself. Hey, Solomon was now entering into an experiment. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. Test is a good word. The idea was that he was going to enter into a pursuit of pleasure to bring meaning to his life's efforts. Will this bring an end to his misery and pain? Would he finally be satisfied? Would he finally have joy? So Solomon is going to enjoy himself. Uh, That is the key in verse 1, enjoy yourself. The word in translated enjoy appears 1,300 times in the Old Testament. It is most often translated as see. Solomon wanted to see for himself or experience for himself pleasure. He wanted to know what that was like, to just have pleasure, to have joy, to have meaning, to have fulfillment, and get rid of all these responsibilities, all these heartaches, and all these miseries, and just enjoy himself. B, Psalm at this point is still acting wisely. Verse 3, I searched with my whole heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So he still had discernment. But we're going to see is there's a downward spiral that Solomon is going to enter into. This pursuit is going to end up bad. It's going to end up in a bad situation. It isn't going to end up with the joy that he anticipated. In fact, it's going to lead him far from God. He's going to go in the wrong direction. This self-indulgence isn't the answer. He's starting off okay, but he's going to go downhill mighty fast. Number two, Solomon is still looking at life from a godly perspective when he begins, for he says at the end of verse three, well, I'll read the whole verse. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me uh, with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he's looking for pleasure. He's looking for joy. And as he begins, he has a right relationship with God. He's just simply saying to himself, I found out this isn't what I thought it was going to be, this pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. It didn't get me what I thought it would, so let's try pleasure. Let's just try living for ourselves. Let's not focus on all the hardships and difficulties. Let's put that out of our mind and just say, let's eat, drink, and be happy for tomorrow we die. So number three, Solomon wants to ease his troubled mind by simply looking for that which will bring him pleasure. See, Solomon begins with looking for sensual or physical pleasure. I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine. All right, let's just, let's just imbibe a little more. Let's bring some cheer to my life 
through drinking. D, Solomon also wanted to give himself some frivolous pursuits. He wanted to do some things just for the fun of it. He was seeking to be carefree. He was hoping that it would result in a happier and more contented life. <clears throat> and so it says in verse 3, I searched my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly. How to just grab that which is inconsequential, meaningless. But he was coming to the conclusion that life is meaningless anyway, so why not just give himself to, to meaningless things? <laughs> you know, whatever's going to be... Make you happy. You know, it, it's like a continual vacation. It's, let's go to the amusement park. Let, let's just have fun. <laughs> and forget about all these troubles. Let's just have fun. Let's just have fun. Let's make that what life is about. Life is about being happy. Let's just have fun for a change. E, Solomon sought to enjoy life by engaging in a number of different sensual pleasures. Solomon sought pleasure through drinking. I just mentioned Number two, Solomon sought pleasure through building things for himself. Solomon built some magnificent houses, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. First Kings chapters 6 and 7 describe some of these building projects of Solomon. First Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it says, 37, in the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the mount of Ziv, in the eleventh month, in this month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the houses were finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. So he spent seven years in building the temple. Verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. What an incredible comparison. It took him almost twice as long to build his house as he did to build the temple. The time and effort that he put into it. Verse 8. His own house, where he was to dwell in the outer court of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage, all these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones, cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. And then it goes on to describe, when you get to Chronicles, how the Queen of Sheba came and just marveled at Solomon's palace and all that, he, she, all that he had. She had never seen anything like it. He had these incredible building projects. Solomon had tremendous vineyards. Ecclesiastes 2.4, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards, which was very popular for kings to do. Remember, one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world is the Babylonian gardens uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar built. Solomon had his gardens. Solomon had a garden and parks to enjoy. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks. Solomon had groves and trees and irrigated them all. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made 
myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he not only had a house, he had estates. He had vineyards. He had forests. He had trees. He irrigated them all. E, all of this was extremely self-indulgent. It was not for the public good or for the benefit of others. The key here is myself. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. It became all about Solomon. He's seeking pleasure. He did all these things for himself. Forget the nation now. Forget other people. He is rich. He has these resources. Use them for his pleasure. Use them for his pleasure. I uh, enjoy going through the uh, auditorium where they uh, show the the film concerning uh, Hershey's life. You know, the founder of Hershey Corporation, Hershey Park, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, just to get a glimpse of what he was like and to realize that what is now Hershey Park uh, was once a nonprofit part of Hershey that was built just for the sake of his employees, that they would have a place to go and enjoy themselves with their families when they had some free time. He was thinking about others. He was thinking about his employees. He was thinking about what they could enjoy. Solomon is done with that. Now this is about Solomon. And just using his abilities, his resources for himself. Three, Solomon sought pleasure through adding additional servants to provide for his wants. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. It wasn't sufficient, the amount of slaves that uh, were just born. So he continued to buy more male and female servants. Four, Solomon acquired great wealth through his livestock. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Solomon was not only keeping up with the Joneses, Solomon was surpassing the Joneses, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. No one was as rich as Solomon. And not only did he have wealth, you know, sometimes people have huge bank accounts. They have an incredible net worth. You know, we have people that are multi-billionaires. I can't imagine what it's like to have a multiple, uh, multiples of billions of dollars. But a lot of that is in stock. A lot of that is in uh, intangible wealth, if you will. But Solomon was unique because he had wealth in every category. Not only did he have great uh, amounts of money in the bank, as it were, not only did he have gold and et cetera, et cetera, aside, but he had the livestock, he had the real estate, <laughs> he had everything that you could imagine that wealth could accomplish, all right? He had it all. When you talk about a financial portfolio, five, Solomon sought pleasure 
by becoming a collector and accumulating things and wealth. Ecclesiastes uh, 2.8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. NAS translates that, I collected for myself silver and gold. It's probably a little better translation. The idea is that he did. He, he, he formed a collection. For Solomon just added to that which he had no real use for. You know, like a car collection, for example, when somebody has, you know, 200, 250 cars. And there are people that have 200, 250 cars. But all they can do is look at them. <laughs> they can't drive them. And they don't even have it for the intention of driving them. They have it for, to look at, which I don't want to get too far into Ecclesiastes, uh, but there's a great verse about the only thing you can do with it is look at it. And there are a lot of people that have incredible collections, but all they can do is look at it, whether it be an art collection, whether it be a car collection, whatever the collection. He collected things as silver and gold. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21 and following, it says, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So he had a collection like none before him. He had a zoo. (laughs) He had gardens. He had houses. He had servants. He had it all. Six, Solomon sought pleasure through entertainment. I got singers, both men and women. Solomon sought pleasure through sexual promiscuity. So you can see the decline, right? You You can see how he just keeps going further and further and further, for none of it is satisfying. (laughs) It isn't enough. It hasn't brought the joy that he wants. He needs more. He needs more. He needs more. So Solomon sought pleasure through sexual promiscuity, Ecclesiastes 2.8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and now this, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. First Kings chapter 11, verse 3, we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that he had 700 wives who were princesses, and he had 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So Solomon's heart now is far from God, far from God. He has hitting the bottom in this spiral. I have here the concubines were wives that had no legal status. That was important when you thought of the king. A wife had legal standing. Uh, The offspring of a wife would have a claim upon the throne. Now with all those wives and all those children, you can imagine that some are pretty, pretty far away from the kingship in line. But theoretically, if you were an offspring of a wife, you had some claim upon the throne. And uh, maybe you were 
100th in line in uh, that claim, but nonetheless, you had a claim. But a child of a concubine had no claim, no claim. Uh, one of the reasons that wives were added to kings is they used them for political power. Uh, they would marry the daughter of Pharaoh in order to make an allegiance and a compact and bring peace, etc. So there were many reasons for having wives. But concubines, they were purely for sexual pleasure. They served no function as far as the government was concerned. There were no legal ties. There, there was no <clears throat> arrangement with other nations that would have by having a princess, as I say, like the daughter of Pharaoh, marrying Solomon to bring peace between Egypt and uh, Israel. The wives, excuse me, the concubines served no purpose other than for his sexual pleasure. Eight, Solomon sought pleasure in becoming superior in every way to everyone else. Verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. It is meant to be a broad and encompassing statement. Now think about that for a moment. There's an old statement that says that everyone is ignorant just in their own way. That there is no one who knows everything. But Solomon was awfully close of one who knew everything. And it says that there was no area in which he was not superior to all who came before him. You think about wealth, you think about entertainment, you think about these sexual pleasures. There was no one who had or who exercised their greed, their desire for pleasure. No one could match Solomon. He was at the top. You know, and for many people, that's what they're after. They, they want to be number one. But usually they want to be like the fastest runner on the face of the earth, or they want to be the wealthiest person or whatever. Solomon was number one in everything. Can you imagine? Number 10, Solomon took pleasure in being proud of all that he accomplished. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. This is rock bottom. Whatever I wanted, I got. Whatever I wanted, I did. I practiced no restraint. There was nothing that kept me from doing whatever I want. I had the ultimate freedom. I gave myself complete license. And he had the wherewithal to bring it to pass. If he wanted, he got it. If he wanted to do it, he did it. Number 10. Solomon took pleasure in being proud of all that he accomplished. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in my, all my toil. Which brings us to 11. Solomon thought all these things that he enjoyed were supremely deserved. End of verse 
10. And this was my reward for all my toil. Solomon simply looked at this and said, I deserve this. I deserve this. I'm entitled. You see, here is again this aspect of falling so deeply into sin. He initially was seeking to find the answers to people's problems. He initially was trying to help his subjects. He felt a responsibility to care for people and to remove the injustices and give them a life that was right. And he got to the place where he said, Fooey on that. I deserve this. I deserve this. They don't. They don't. They don't deserve the pleasure. My wisdom got me this. My work got me this. I deserve these servants. These people now to be at my beck and call. I deserve it. F. Simply seeking to enjoy life is futile as well. Verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Ecclesiastes 2.2, the NAS, I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? After all of that, Solomon is still miserable. After all that, Solomon is still unhappy. All of, after all that, Solomon still doesn't see any meaning to life. What does he have? What does he have? Yeah. May not mean anything to you, but uh, my father, uh, when he started out, uh, actually, before he owned his own farm, he managed farms for uh, a millionaire. Uh, the uh, farm that he managed was a show farm for the president of Chase Manhattan Bank. And uh, my dad worked for him for a number of years, and developed a good relationship with this man's son, who would come out sometimes to the show farm and just kind of hang out, and he got to know my dad. And uh, they had kind of a unique friendship, although this kid was, of course, filthy rich. And uh, I remember, I don't remember, my dad told me the story, of uh, he got... uh, came over to see my dad at the, the farm, and he was driving a, a brand new uh, sports car, 16 years old, driving a brand new sports car. And uh, took my dad for a ride and uh, opened the glove box, and $100 bills fell out of the glove box. My dad said, well, you, you must be pretty happy with your sports car. And he said, well, not really. He said, I was given a new car from my eighth birthday on. 
I used to just drive it around the estate for fun. He said, new cars don't mean much to me anymore. Most of us think, wow, wow, man, can you imagine? It's deceitful. It's deceitful. You know, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves or talk about are these things. Conclusion, life is difficult with all its responsibilities. One can easily get to the point of frustration and just want to be free of one's duties and obligations and simply enjoy life. Have you ever felt that way and just said, you know, man, you know, I, I gave all this time and all this effort, and what's it getting me? We're not getting any different. You know, this thing is still not working out. People don't appreciate it. You know, why am I doing all this? That desire can be manifest in a great range of applications. It can be as simple as longing for retirement so that one can finally be free to enjoy life. Or it can be so problematic as wanting to leave one's spouse and family in order to fulfill one's own needs and desires as members as, as a means of obtaining happiness. Just saying, why do I put my effort in this family? Why am I making sacrifices? Why don't I just live for myself? Look out for number one. I deserve it. I've worked hard. It's tempting. See, the self-indulgent life is not all that it's cracked out to be. Solomon went to the excesses and seeking pleasures in life. Solomon had more resources to enjoy pleasure than we will ever have. We can never match what Solomon experienced. He had it all in the minds of some. However, none of that brought Solomon satisfaction and joy. That's the point. That's the point. And so tonight, as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, the question is simple. And that is, what do you think will bring you happiness? What do you think would make you thoroughly happy? What is your dream? What are you longing for? What are you working hard to achieve? What's your goal? What picture do you put on the refrigerator to say, this is what's going to make me happy? This is what all my work is worthy of. What do you have in the back of your mind that you are saying, when I get this, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be fulfilled. Then I'm going to have joy. When will that happen? What will it take? Is our accomplishments... Is it all the things that we build, all the things that we get done? Is it our work? Is it we give ourselves so that we can get higher up the corporate ladder, so that we can have a status that is over other people? Is it to think, I'm doing something worthwhile, I'm doing something meaningful? I'm doing something of great worth. 
And that's what makes me happy. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't seem to be as valuable as you thought it was. Is it our toys? Is it our possessions? Is it our collection? Is it massing certain things that we can look at and view and say it's mine, all mine, only mine? Or is it something else? Is it something else? What's going to make you happy? What road are you going down? What goals have you set for yourself? Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us. For we all desire meaning and fulfillment in life. Oh Lord, guard our hearts and minds in that great pursuit. Help us to find it in you. Lord, uh, guard us and keep us. Teach us once again that it's not our knowledge that's going to keep us. It's our heart. So guard our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.